Hello and welcome, and thank you for joining. I'm your host, Seth Haskin. I started this podcast to dive deeper into the ways we know one another and God. The goal is to ask the question of why God loves. I invite people from many walks of life to join me on this adventure. As we dive deeper into personifying God, we have to bring him into our three-dimensional world, but also understand that he lives in another state of being, the fourth dimension. I would love to welcome and thank our guest today. He is a friend of mine with a bachelor's in journalism from Bethel University. He has led a reporting team in a uh, creation of a full-length feature magazine focused on women's issues in rural Northwest India. He was involved with Bethel University's school newspaper, The Clarion, and now works at Open Book Communications. He is an amazing storyteller with a passion for sharing such stories. Please welcome and thank our guest and my friend, Mr. Zach Walker. Hello. Yes. You really got the details. I did. India? Where did, did you find that on like a, my portfolio or something? Your or LinkedIn. My, res- my LinkedIn? That's <laughs> hilarious. Your I LinkedIn. was like, that sounds like something verbatim that I wrote. That is something verbatim you wrote. I was like, all right. Let's, and it let's, was. Let's, let's well, let's thank you for that wonderful intro, Zach. Yes. Well, tell us more about yourself besides just like maybe your accomplishments. Yeah. Um, Seth told you my name. My name is Zach Walker. My full name is Zachariah Clinton Walker. My parents wanted to be different. My dad says that he named me Zachariah because he liked the way it rolled off the tongue. So that's exciting. Um, <laughs> I live in St. Paul, um, and it's a great time. I live up by the big old cathedral. I really love movies right now. I watch a lot of them in the theater. It's one of my favorite things to do. I like following all the Oscar stuff, so I watch try to watch all the movies that I think are going to have some Oscar buzz around them. And that's really exciting. Um, like you said, I'm a writer and creative strategist at open book communications. It's a creative team and consultancy, um, agency in South Minneapolis. I've been there for about six months and it's been, um, a really good time. Love everybody that I work with and learning a lot, having a good time. And then, um, I'm an only child. That's another fun thing. Uh, really close with my parents. My dad is very goofy. Uh, my mom is also very goofy, and they're both uh, they're both really great. My dad, uh, one fun thing about him is uh, he really loves horses and cows, and so much that it has become like the one thing that he judges a good movie off of is like, <laughs> does it have a good horse and cow content? Um, so he loves he loves those horses and those cows. Uh, yeah, went to Bethel. Was on as the editor-in-chief and other things before that for the Clarion. Loved that. Uh, That's where, obviously, I got into journalism and then have done some professional journalism on the side with internships but haven't done much uh, after graduating, which I want to do more. Um, But, yeah, that's – I could – there are probably other things about myself, (laughs) but – there's some things. My favorite movie is The Shawshank Redemption. I think it's the best movie of all time. Um, my favorite book is Into the Wild by John Krakauer. I did my senior research on the uh, characterization of Christopher McCandless across uh, media platforms. And those are some media things about me. Bon Iver is my favorite musical artist. Artist from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. The Bon Iver, Bon Iver album is perfect. I love it. I also love Pine Grove. So check those out. <laughs> There's some things I've rattled. It's all right. Got to know you more, right? It's not all right. <laughs> I'm ruining the podcast. Uh, no. Um, 
So I just have a couple of introductory questions about yourself and like exactly what you do. And my first one is what do you do as a journalist or what is journalism? What do, okay. So what, not what do I do as a journalist now? Because that would be nothing. Yeah. But <laughs> what do you, in general, what is journalism? Yeah. Um, I think in broad stroke terms, I see journalism as um, truthful storytelling. So you're writing stories about real people and real events, and you're trying to portray those stories um, in the best light that um, explaining exactly what happened with those stories. A good comparison to make is if you take a photo of something and then bring it into Photoshop um, to journalistically edit it, you should only edit it up to the point to make it look exactly how it looked in real life. And that's the same what I think is the same with all journalism is you should enhance the story, but enhance it in a way that enhances um, how it was in real life and enhance the uh, experience and, and invite others into that story in a way that they can see how it was in real life, not fabricating details, not, um, not manipulating tone to give a different impression of a character, um, but really trying to focus in on those exact words, on the way you order them, on your descriptions, on your verbs, on all your parts of speech to really honor the people and the events and mm -hmm. everything that you're telling that story about. And honor in a way that's not, because I feel like when I say honor the people, that seems to be, that could be taken like a positive, only positive context of like, Mm -hmm. Just making people look good, you know, but sometimes there's a lot of stories about people doing not so good things or people that shouldn't be lifted up as like, this is the greatest person ever, but still honoring like this, like honoring and respecting storytelling as a concept and truth as a concept and just telling it how it is and doing it in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. And I think a beautiful way is a way that invites a wide audience in um, without very much of a barrier of entry. So, and then journalism obviously can take a lot of forms. I did mostly writing. Um, so my niche was feature journalism, long form. So I love to spend a lot of time with my sources, get a lot of sensory information um, and do a lot of interviews, spend a lot of time with them and then write a longer form piece. So like 2000 or more words. I was notorious on the clarion for going over the word count and notorious in my classes for going over the word count, which I've learned to, to cut down. But I always love just getting a really robust picture of a character or a story. But there's also, I've done some photojournalism, done a little bit of video journalism. Um, and then I've done some podcasting as well. What you're doing right now is journalism, mm -hmm. I think. Um, telling stories of um, people's experiences and what they believe to be true and what they um, focus on in the world. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. But yeah. yeah, that's my answer to the first. What was your second question? Uh it you answered it. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like what do you do as a journalist and you answered it. And it's okay. just like you tell stories in a very honest manner. Yeah. And so they're kind of um wrapped up to yeah. two of the same question. Just different way of asking it. So my next question is what is the best thing about journalism or being a journalist and mm. what's something hard? Mm. Yeah. The best thing you're asking the best thing about being a journalist, yeah. Not the best or, thing about journalism, yeah, or journalism. You okay. can answer either. I think there's, I think that those are those are different mm -hmm. questions and different beasts for sure. I guess I'll answer the best thing about being a journalist and doing the act of journalism. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think it gives you, it, it has been the absolute number one driver of empathy in my life and has, it ha, it, it's not only created empathy and made me a more empathetic person, but it's allowed me to understand what empathy is and mm-hmm. why we should go after it. Um, and because I think I, I grew up and my parents would always tell me like the golden rule, like treat people how you want to be treated. And Jesus says that obviously and all of that. But I, I would always just do it because it felt good. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, I want to be kind to people because it my parents say that I should and it feels good to do that. And I feel like I would want people to be kind to me. So I'll do that. But it was never like deeper than that. It was like why I wasn't asking myself philosophical questions <laughs> in fourth grade. But <laughs> getting into college and doing journalism, empathy started to make more sense to me because I started learning about storytelling and learning what it could be. Um, and once I started doing journalism and I started talking to people and I started really asking intentional questions to get them to share deep parts of themselves, deep parts of their stories, their experiences that are so wholly unique to them and so valuable and just as valuable as mine, which mm-hmm. in my head is the most valuable thing, you know, mm-hmm. and everybody's had their story is the most valuable one because it's mm-hmm. the one you know the most about, you know, so it has that sense of being the most valuable. Yeah. But when I started learning and doing more journalism, I was like other people's stories were lighting up in a way that they hadn't before. I had always been interested in, in stories. I've always loved media. I've always loved reading and watching movies and watching TV shows. And I would write little stories as a kid in my dad's office. And, um, I would never draw cause I was bad at art, but I would write these little stories and I'd share them with my dad. And I think he still has them. He keeps all the stuff that I've ever done. Um, but I, I, I loved narrative and I loved creating worlds. And then I, I learned that I really had a knack for creating real worlds too mm-hmm. and um, shedding a light on real worlds. And <clears throat> that, uh, that caused me to understand empathy in a way that's like, if I walk into a room with a hundred people, and I'm sure you've heard me say this, mm-hmm. um, it's so like, fascinating and beautiful to me that every single person in that room, no matter what they look like, no matter where they're from, no matter my relationship to them, no matter if it's positive or negative, if they like me or if they don't like me, if they love the type of movies I like, or if they don't, if I don't like this food and they do, or if we clash or if we love each other, whatever, if we've known each other for a hundred years, or if we've known each other for zero years, like every single store, every single person in that room has a story that's just as valuable, just as deep, just as complex, endlessly complex as mine. Mm-hmm. And that is so cool. And like realizing that I just like, I, whenever I think about that, I'm like, how can you not treat everybody around you with such honor and such respect? You know, how can you just brush somebody off? How can mm-hmm. you just blow somebody off? which we all do is we're human and Mm we don't think. And if we have our own desires and something we got to get to or something that's going on, you know, I'm not, I don't sit down and look somebody deeply in the eye, every person I meet, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, tell me your story. Cause that's annoying. You know, those people that are like, sit you down and they're like, tell me your heart. Tell me like what, and you know, and it's like, there has to be a level of authenticity to it. You know, it's so Mm -hmm. it's not me always just being like, 
I want a one-on-one with every single person for five hours, and I'm just going to ask them drilling questions (laughs) until they cry. (laughs) You know? No, it's like, how do you, like, just having this kind of in the back of your head, this focus of, like, I can never fully understand the story of this person that's next to me, but I can damn well try mm-hmm. a good amount to do that. Mm-hmm. And and what that trying looks like is not is asking questions and being curious, but it's also being like silently curious and just like, man, how can I, what little thing can I do to bring joy to this person or to honor their story? And that's how I think of it. Cause it's mm-hmm. like, I think sometimes it's a little dangerous to just look at the concept of joy too. You know, if you are just looking at your relationships with like, how can I make this person happy or joyful in this moment, which I have such a tendency to do and it has caused a lot of goodness, but it's also caused some, some strife, you know, like my current girlfriend and I, Mary, I love her very much and we have different communication styles and sometimes I have reacted in a way that's just like, okay, how can I make you happy? What can I do to fix this situation? And that's not how I honor her story, you know? learned about her and learning that sometimes you just have to sit with somebody and just be like, man, that sucks. Or just like asking questions or just Mm -hmm. letting them like process and chill. And so, yeah, I've rambled, but it's, um, storytelling. It, it's the justification that I have for in every moment, not putting, like putting somebody else first. It's, it's that justification of treating others like you want to be treated and Mm -hmm. always having that focus, that natural focus on how can I make somebody's experience in the world better right now in the way that best suits them. And that's a big question. Um, and it's not something you learn immediately, but storytelling and story listening, that's something that I think like my junior or senior year of college, like that's something that I started thinking about more because I always thought of journalism. Like, storytelling, that's what I do. I'm a storyteller. I listen to the stories, but then I tell them to everybody else. I write them and then they're my words. They're mine. <laughs> but story, there's also story listening, which is like probably a bigger part of it and a more human part of it because not everybody's going to be a storyteller. Not everybody's going to go out and then and then announce somebody else's story and amplify voices. But Mm -hmm. what we have to be first as story listeners is, is very, you go up to somebody and you have to be curious about their experience, no matter what their beliefs are, no matter how they've treated you, you know, and there's, there's intricacies. I always mess that word up in intricacies of that, but it's just being curious and, and wanting to honor them as a person by, by being curious. So I hope that was um, uh, uh, understandable. <laughs> I, think I, I think I rambled, but it's okay. I you, love talking about it. Yeah, so. yeah, and that's and it's great because I think uh, as humans, we oftentimes come from oral cultures um, yeah. where we listen to how how to do stuff is very orally taught. I mean, a lot of times we can read how to do things, but it's a lot more influential if someone tells us how to do things. Um, as you can see with relationships, um, getting information from someone that you know is different than like reading that information. Mm. Um, the way you interpret it is different. So I think mm. it's very interesting that um, journalism is this um, party of people who try to keep the authenticity. Auth- <laughs> you got it. Come on. Uh 
Ah, uh, maybe. My goodness, my mind is just not working. Authenticity. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> of uh, the person that you're interviewing or the situation that you're interviewing. Um, yeah. Now that person may have embellishments, but um, you're not embellishing those embellishments, which I think is very important. Divine embellishment. Um, I think some of the uh, like comedians are very good at embellishing stories for a comedic, you know, purpose. Does embellishing just I'm unclear of the definition of embellishing. Uh, I, I, I don't know the straight English major. I, <laughs> I don't know the, the direct definition of embellishment, but embellishment it's is like, like changing um, for your own good. Or uh, something. Well, that and like exaggerating a certain feature sure, or sure, like sure, sure, making sure. something more interesting that maybe wasn't interesting. Okay. Before. So not, not essentially lying, but no. like emphasizing a part that might making it hyperbolic. That, yeah. Okay, cool. Yes. Yes. Hyperbolic embellishment cool. can be used interchangeably, but yes. So you're not embellishing their embellishment, which I think yeah. is important, and I think that yeah. it's very important. Yeah, for and that's, to that, that comes with, I mean, that's hard, too, mm-hmm. you know, because you, like, journalism does, it's, it's not just sitting down with somebody and writing mm-hmm. every single word that they say and then just spouting that off as truth, because especially with high-level journalism mm-hmm. and, and, like, watchdog journalism, journalism that keeps power structures in line, yep. you know, that stuff, like people are going to try to embellish. People are going to try to hide the truth or disclose information and in maybe not the way that it should be. Mm-hmm. And you as a journalist have to have really sharp ears. And that's why people, yeah, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard and people can make mistakes. Yeah. And it's like, that's, that's why I like, I feel like you can tell when a journalist is, is trying like trying to be authentic. You can tell when it's obviously like they're writing for a certain tone. Yeah, making something seem worse than it is or making yeah, something seem better exactly. than it is. But it's like mm-hmm. I'm not out here like wanting to flame all journalists and all media because I know it's really hard. It, and mm-hmm. if you haven't like put in the work to try to learn how to do it, like don't come out here and be like, oh, you're a journalist. You're probably trying to get me and get my truth. <laughs> and you're probably going to tell tell everybody that I'm not who I am. And it's yep. just like, no, we're going to do our dang best. And if, if, there's, if it's a true journalist who understands what I believe to be what journalism is about, you know, that person is just going to be out there and what they want to do is they want to tell the truth in the most authentic way. And maybe if somebody's doing something bad, they're not going to want to say that, but a good journalist is going to get that. And then it's going, that journalist is going to tell that in a way that's truthful and show that person is who they are. They're not going to say, I think it's easy for journalists to, if somebody's doing something really nasty, you know, you're going to want to write them up and just like, destroy them and rip them up mm-hmm. if you have that sense of like this person's a bad person so they deserve uh, to be in some pain or something but mm-hmm. good journalism isn't that it's presenting them as they are so it's probably still going to rip them up a little bit but it's only going to rip them up in the sense of how they've ripped themselves up by the stuff mm-hmm. that they've done you know which i don't have as much experience in that because a lot of my stories have been like talking about people who are doing really cool things or have gotten over a lot of adversity and are working toward change. Some of the more puppy dog, happy, happy, smiley stories, (laughs) you know, and there's journalists out there working a lot harder Mm -hmm. than I ever have. And they're working on stories that people don't want them to tell, you know, and those, those like, we need that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in doing more of that, but also I feel like I am, I love the stories where I can just hear like somebody talk about something they're passionate about or mm-hmm. something they've gotten over. Cause I just love to hear that quality in somebody's voice. And I love the anecdotes that come out of that. But yeah, that's so good. Storytelling. So fun. Yeah. It can be so fun. You said the hard thing about 
journalism yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. You can answer that or you can just leave it because you kind of did. You kind of answered how it could be hard to do certain things in journalism. Yeah. It's also, um, it's an awkward profession and um, task. Mm-hmm. It's it's awkward to, to just approach people and, and talk to them in kind of that um like, because journalism isn't 100% balanced. The best journalism is, like, it gets to almost a 50-50 balance of, like, a supernatural conversation. Like, the best long-form journalists are the ones who spend, like, years with sources. Mm-hmm. And they're just, like, they're friends mm-hmm. by the end, you know. But starting out, like, yeah, it's it's awkward to be like, hey, can I, can I sit you down and ask you random questions about your life that you probably like wouldn't be asked in normal life, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And a lot of people are like scared to be interviewed, but like, it's just something that, um, that's always something that's kind of come nat a little more naturally to me, uh, just because I've loved talking to people and I've always not had any sort of stage fright. Grew up a big theater kid and, um, I don't know. I'm an only child, but my parents did a good job of like putting me in front of a bunch of people. Who did you play in Shrek the Musical? Was it Lord Farquaad? Lord, Far- <laughs> Lord Farquaad, yes, in Shrek. I was on my knees, had uh, volleyball knee pads that my dad bought from Fleet Farm, and it was a great time. I anyway, it. that's a fun fact about um, Zach Walker. Yeah. Um, he loves the Shrek musical. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> great. I do. That that musical rocks. So, yeah, that's a – it's not definitely not for everybody because um, mm-hmm. you gotta you have to get over that awkward feeling, especially I've told, story, I've told stories of um, – people who have tragically passed away and had mm-hmm. to talk to their parents or mm-hmm. uh, I had to talk to their parents or um, stories in, in India of women or who are abused every day and um, sitting down and talking to them. And that just takes like understanding their situation. You know, you can't come, you can't approach every story the same. I, I can't approach those women in India. Like I would approach the quarterback of the Bethel football team who just won the some game, you know, because mm-hmm. they're they're at different points. Yeah, you provide a platform for vulnerability. Yeah, exactly. And that could be positive or negative because yeah. you could just be talking about like, oh, what's your favorite music list? That's it. That's in itself a little bit of vulnerability. You know, you mm-hmm. have to talk about what you like. That's vulnerable because yeah. people could disagree with you. Yeah. Um, but then there's those really deep moments where like people are like, nobody knows this about me or, you know, those moments of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And it's so great that... We have people like you offering to tell um, their vulnerability on an organized platform that will keep them authentic. Yeah. And so I think that's so important um, in storytelling as well. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's the same with just relationships in general. Mm -hmm. You know, like how do you how do you create a platform for vulnerability for different people? You have to do that in different ways. You know, I I can't approach my dad in the same way that I approach Mary, you know? And it, it, in like, in a, in a sense I do, cause I want to be myself. But you know, if I, if I know that like, if I want, I'm trying to achieve vulnerability or I know that vulnerability would like help the other person, you know, I can't approach it in the exact same way mm-hmm. because people think about it differently. Yep. So. Yeah. So, as a great writer, storyteller, and digital entertainment guru. Oh, my gosh. Oh, look at that. <laughs> oh big words. Uh, uh, I would like to ask you some questions about relationships specifically through your lens of storytelling uh, or yeah. better known as journalism for you. <laughs> well, it, it's very – I think storytelling is at the core of what journalism yeah. is. Jor- journalism is like storytelling 
in a profession and in a very organized craft, mm-hmm. but storytelling can be a lot of things. It can be, but it yes. But so, what comes to mind when you hear the word relationship, and how does that influence the way you interact with others? Huh. Um, well, when I hear, I feel like I've been. Um, I was conditioned like every middle school boy to mm-hmm. think of relationship in terms of romantic relationships because in middle school you hear, are you in a relationship with somebody a hundred times? That's not how I understand relationships, but mm-hmm. that's just like a funny note of like where my brain goes because but I But girls have cooties. It, yeah, yeah. You, I, you can't be in a relationship with a girl. Well, that cooties. is very true. That's very true. And that's something that people forget. I don't understand <laughs> that people are in romantic relationships. I see a lot of them around school, a lot of them around the cities, and I don't get they do. They have cooties. <laughs> it's like we need to stay away. I'm serious. That's I've been talking about storytelling, but that's what I'm really passionate about. Is <laughs> cootie um uh cootie advocacy. Cootie advocacy. Yes. yes. We need to cootie awareness. <laughs> month (laughs) Um, anyway yeah uh, okay your question relate what do i think about when i think about relationships yeah i mean i very i mean very basic level i mean i just like two people um who are have some sort of it's hard to describe yeah because that word is such like a basic descriptor Mm -hmm. so it's hard to describe a basic descriptor yeah that's why i ask it yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) It's um, relationships, like define relationships. Two people who engage in life with one another in any sort of way. So I don't think of it as the word itself is not positive or negative Mm -hmm. because there can be bad relationships and there can be um, really good relationships. And I guess I I think about it as like two people who are – who have engaged in life together in an ongoing way. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really see it as like I meet one person on the street. That's not a relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, a quaint, that's a, a moment and a moment of, um, of connection, I guess, bad or good, but a relationship is like moment of tangency. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. A relationship is, is there an ongoing connection? Is there an ongoing, um, exchange of life mm-hmm. going on between two people? Um, and yeah, I think the the best ones are the ones that have work going into it, uh, mutual work and and understanding and and compassion and curiosity. But also, there can be relationships where you're just you're either forced to like you're forced to engage in mutual life with somebody because of either maybe they're your family or maybe there's somebody that you see a lot or work somebody with. who wants to be in a relationship with you but it's like toxic and you don't want do with them but they like are still there you know or work with yeah it's like constant tangent tangentiality yeah consistent um uh closeness but yeah so that's that's what i think about yeah i think about relationship that was kind of like not flashy (laughs) (laughs) that's okay we're 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 about flashy moments and non-flashy moments Mm. some things gotta sparkle some things don't oh that's your catchphrase oh, for this yeah. podcast. Yeah. Yep. Uh, something's got to sparkle and some things, some things don't. don't. Oh, yeah. Soundbite. Boom. Right there. Um, can you describe um, any relationships you have? Uh, it could be anyone. Um, you don't have to, but um, why are those relationships important to you? And do you categorize your relationships in a different mm. way? 
Not um, mindfully. Okay. I don't categorize. I, I don't. I don't think of my relationships like my relationship with my dad is this one, and it has this mm-hmm. category, and this one, and this one. I know that like relationship science has categories, and I know you mm-hmm. know you know them, and you've told me them. <laughs> and there's like a relationship of exchange and a relationship of mutual other, benefit. Yeah, the, you know like, those things. I don't think about those things on a daily, yeah, but I know yeah. of them. Yes. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't say I categorize them. They're definitely like different, but I think mindfully, 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 I think about relationships is kind of all on the same plane of mm-hmm. just like I'm. If it's a relationship that I like want to be in, you know, it's always just like, am I being myself, right? And am I allowing the other person to be themselves and be that in the fullest? most life-giving way um and am i like i think there's also like ways that different things that different people bring out of you you know mary um introduced me to this concept that i think c.s lewis like penned in a book called the four loves i think and it's this concept of like every you like the people around you the close friends that you have and you the people that you're in relationship with will unlock different parts of you and different parts of your full self that others can't. But when you're in relationship with one person, you still are your full self, but you're just like expressing that in a different way. Mm -hmm. And then other people will unlock a part of your full self. And then when you're in community with people, there will be even more parts of your full self unlocked that like, if I'm in community with like you and Jimmy, some character I'm making up, you know, you, yes, you (laughs) you and Jimmy Neutron will collectively unlock a part of me that that will not be able to unlock if it was you and SpongeBob, mm-hmm. you know, and the, but that will be a different thing. And it really helped me understand this because I feel like I have a tendency to question my authenticity in relationships and being like, man, I'm different when I'm with my parents versus when I'm with Mary. I'm different when I'm with SpongeBob than I am when I'm with Jimmy Neutron. Copyright you know, Nickelodeon. Because they're they're competing on both Nickelodeon, you know? So <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to harbor those feelings that they have against one another. Mm-hmm. But I have that tendency of being like, am I not being authentic? Am I not being my full self? And obvi- there's definitely moments where I probably am not. But also, like, M- Mary, when she introduced me to this concept, gave me a lot of relief because it's like, no, you can be fully authentic but in different ways when i'm with my parents i'm still fully authentic but they bring out different parts of me and when i'm with mary i'm fully authentic but she's bringing out different parts of me she brings out parts of my humor that my best friend mark doesn't but he brings out parts that mary doesn't or mary can't and vice versa so i think that's a really really cool concept and there's a lot more to it and i haven't read the book and i hope i didn't like botch it but I think that's really, really cool. Mm -hmm. You're kind of getting on the topic of like um, this new buzzword called context collapse. Have you ever heard of that? No. What is that? Uh, Context collapse, I like to describe um, people Mm -hmm. using it for social media, but I can use it in like a marriage. You have different versions of yourself, like you're saying, that are unlocked when you're around certain people. But at a marriage setting, uh, like at a wedding, um, you have all those people in one room. And it's kind of this awkward tension of you don't know how to act. You don't know what's your authentic self. 
And I feel like you're kind of getting that idea of this collapse of context. Who am I around is who I'm going to kind of be at this moment in my life. Um, so I think it's very interesting and I think it's a very mm-hmm. interesting topic. I'm actually going to talk about it, um, in the next episode with Dr. Mulberry. Oh, that's cool. Yep. Um, he's a history professor here he at rocks. Bethel and, um, he is, he does rock. Um, but we're going to talk about context and history and that's relationships. Cool. So that's cool. Way to go. Pick it out the next episode <laughs> yeah, like that. that, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, but that is so cool. Yeah. Because it's so important to think about, um, relationships and how you're different in different ones. Yeah. So, so we like that. Um, my next question is, how do you envision your relationship with God? Question mark. <laughs> that's, that's that's the whole with question. God. Yeah. <laughs> um. Hmm. Yeah. Very. That's a hard one. Take time. Thing that I'm still trying to figure out. I think one thing. Um. I think yeah. I feel like talking about faith has been kind of difficult. I feel like my faith has kind of been like stagnant for mm-hmm. the past four years. I don't know. Um, I'm still like very much a believer, but mm-hmm. haven't, I don't know. It does. It hasn't felt like a super living, breathing part of me. Yeah, and, and that's I, fine. And I want it to be. That's, but, that's fine and that can be normal. There have been a couple of kind of like revelations over the last couple of years. And one thing in my relationship with God that kind of blew me away when I, thought about it and realized it is in every relationship that I have in my life, there's not a single person that knows me completely, right? There's not a single person who, not completely. Well, yes, completely, but also knows me selflessly. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the thing is like my dad and my mom love me so much, the most that they can, right? The most that they can, but there's always some sort of subjectivity of how they love me. Um, they love me through the lens of what, how they perceive me mm-hmm. and of their lives and what I do there, it's going into their minds and then they're running it through the cycles of their experience. Mm-hmm. So it's always a subjective love, but it's still an incredible love, mm-hmm. you know, same with Mary, same with Mark, same with you, same with all my best friends. And it's this, yeah, it's this subjective, um, not selfish, but not selfless mm-hmm. love where you're running it through the context of everything else you've been through. And that and that enables you or that makes it impossible for people around me to know me fully, right? Because they're always knowing me through their own context. Mm-hmm. And even if I tell them every thought that I've ever had, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. But if I do it from now on and say every single thought, they still won't know me completely because they don't know the place those thoughts are coming from mm-hmm. and all of the little context that those thoughts are running through. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is the only person who does that. It's a selfless love and it is an objective love. And Jesus like knows every part of me and it's not going through any sort of context. It's not going through Jesus's 33 years on earth. You know, it's, it's going through the context of everything. Therefore it's going through the context of like nothing. Right. (laughs) I don't know if that makes sense, but like, yeah, it's, it's, it's clean. So he's seeing me in a clean one-to-one relationship and that is thrilling. And that is so comforting 
to know that there is somebody, the creator of the universe, that knows me completely and totally understands everything I'm going through, everything I'm thinking. If I feel completely lost and like nobody understands me, you know, and there's not many moments where that happens for me. And I know mm -hmm. there's other people who that happens to a lot, you know, and I don't know why I'm different from them or how that happens, but whatever, you know, but even in those moments, like I know that Jesus, God loves me and knows everything I'm going through and it's not selfless and there's no, it, it is selfless and it is objective and there, it is unconditional. And that comfort is so awesome and it's that idea of like, I see God not as this person who's like hounding over me and watching me and making sure I do everything right. You know, because that, the thing I just explained could probably be understood. It's like, oh, he knows everything and all my thoughts and where they're all coming from. Ah, I better think differently. But mm -hmm. it's like, no, like he doesn't care. He's like, it's, I mean, I don't know if that's not the right way to say it. But he's not like out here. He's not the cop around the corner waiting yeah, for you yeah, to yeah, make yeah. a mistake. Yeah, exactly. He's not yeah. making tally marks. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he's he's there to lean on. He's there as a comforter. He's there as somebody who knows you, who trusts you. I think that's something that just came to my head is like, I feel like there's not a lot said about like God's trust of us and God like believing that we can be good and we like want to seek him out. I feel like there's so much talk about like we're depraved and we're the worst ever. And it's like, I know that's biblical and I know like that's stuff. And I like my personal beliefs and how I see things like kind of go against that or that's uncomfortable for well, me. Well, it's just one interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I, I don't hear a lot of like, there is this, this freedom that we have to act as, as we want. And God's like trusting um, that we will want to do good. And I don't know. There's a lot of theological. No, no, I think I don't know. <laughs> I think you bring up a very interesting point that I have thought about, but never have like thought, thought about, you know, like it's been through my head and I was like, Oh, okay. But like, you're bringing it up and it's this idea of maybe that's why some people are afraid of, you know, being in a relationship with God or being with God or just like believing in God, the, because he knows you. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be such a scary thought. We think well, that yeah. like, he's not Santa. No, you but, know? And I feel like that, I, I know it's funny, mm -hmm. but it's like, that's how he's talked about sometimes mm -hmm. in some Christian circles is he's just like a big, powerful Santa. He knows like when you're sleeping. Yeah, he's always <laughs> watching you. And if you, if you mess up, you're not going to get any better gifts. Better not pout. You better you know? not cry. Yeah. He's not going to give you the gifts. Yeah. And it's like, it's not that. Yeah. It's, I see God's like omnipotence and always seeing me, always knowing what I'm doing mm -hmm. as like, he has the currency to offer me infinite eternal comfort. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't have the currency to, I mean, even though he does, he's not going to use it to judge me and destroy me and all of that. He's going to use it to like in hard situations, nudge me towards seeing the good, nudge me toward learning. You know, I'm not somebody who believes in interventionism. I, I don't believe that God is out here like picking and choosing what we do and who experiences tragedy and who experiences delight and joy. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that when we come upon those feelings, God is there and God is putting a pressure on us to 
to route that back to him and just route it back to beauty, which is routing it back to him. Mm-hmm. He is beauty. All things beautiful. You know, mm-hmm. it's not routing it back to him. Is like routing it back to understanding that I suck and I need to read my <laughs> Bible. You know, no, it's routing it back to like, what was a beauty in this situation? You know, when I first went to college at University of Wisconsin after applying to 100 schools and or applying to 15 schools and visiting nine and starting all that process in eighth grade and putting so much of my identity in that and then hating that school. It's, it's a good school. It just wasn't for me. Hating it and having the worst four months of my life. You know, like I really had to lean on God and looking back and being like, there was good in that. You know, I had a wonderful roommate. I was able to write on a satire newspaper. But even if that all wasn't there, it was like I, I could feel his nudge of like, it's okay that you made a mistake. You know, maybe if there wasn't any tangible, like real world earthly benefit of me going through all that trauma, which it's that's not the word for it, but like hardship, mm-hmm. there was that, there was that, um, priceless value of learning learning that it's okay to make a huge mistake mm-hmm. and learning that it's okay to make a different decision than the one you spent a ton of time doing you know so and that and that's where god is you know he's 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 nudging you toward those realizations so yeah that's some of the way that i see god very very good <laughs> <laughs> i think it, i i love asking that question cuz people Again, um, they have their context, they have their concepts, they have a way of interpreting the world around them, and that influences the way they see God. Yeah. And I think it's so important to, again, tell stories about mm-hmm. how we see God, um, because maybe people can find similarities and they're like, I'm not alone. You know? Yeah, and share that. stories and listen to stories mm-hmm. objectively. Listen, which is impossible to do that tr- like 100%. 100% but yep. listen to stories, especially about God, and just listen them, listen to them through with the intention of just being curious and learning Mm -hmm. you know there's way too many people and i've done it and i'm sure you've done it and everybody's done it where you listen to a story about god and you're like okay how does this tick all the boxes that i believe about god Mm. and then you react in that way of like oh thanks for sharing but this isn't biblically true it's like get out of here get (laughs) out of here stop stop doing that that's driving people away from christianity it's like just be curious i don't care if somebody says like some crazy thing, some really hurtful thing, something that's so biblically wrong. It's like if they're trying to understand God, like let them try. Mm-hmm. Let people try. And yeah, offer yeah, o- offer your beliefs if you want, but offer some some um curiosity and some th- gratefulness for their vulnerability first. Mm-hmm. And do that in a real way. Not only just being like, I'm grateful for your vulnerability and I am curious, but here's why you're wrong. (laughs) You know, no, just like you don't always, it's okay. It's, that's not your job. That's not our job. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's something in the Bible that says like, God is the one who will lead people to him. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, we can't wear that people's salvation. We can't, you know, it's like, there's too, there's too much of a focus. I feel like sometimes on like sanctification Mm -hmm. in the way of like us doing it, you know? It's like, oh, you hear like a red buzzer in your head goes off when somebody says something that isn't biblically, in your interpretation, biblically correct. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, I have to, I have to address it. I have to address <laughs> it. It's like, no, I believe you don't. I believe we don't have to address those. What we need to address is 
like we need to make people feel good about wanting to be vulnerable about talking about their faith because if everybody is just reacting to those conversations through their own lens and wanting to shoot people down people are going to one not want to talk about their faith not want to think about their faith and not want to have their faith Mm. you know and that just drives people away from the faith and then that's not what needs to happen (laughs) you know so it's just like I don't know trying to take I try to take myself out of it Mm-hmm. as much as I can. And that's the same with journalism. And that's what journalism taught me about faith and taught me about learning about others' faith. And I don't ask people about their faith all the time. I probably should. I definitely should. But it's it's hard and it's awkward and it's weird. Yeah. Um, but I want to and it's good and I, I should more. But it's like in journalism and in talking to people about anything that is sacred to them um, or true to them, it's taking yourself out. And it's for a second just thinking, just taking in information through the lens of this is somebody else's information that they hold dear and I should do the same thing and I should try to do the same thing. And then in journalism and storytelling, when you're then amplifying that, you need to keep holding it like that. You know, the first day that I was editor-in-chief at the Clarion, that was like the first thing I told my staff was like, I know this is Bethel University and it's a student newspaper. It's not big high stakes, but it's like every single word you write, every single question you ask, every photo you take, every graphic you make, you have to understand that we're holding people's lives here. And it's not like people are going to die if we do it wrong, mm-hmm. but it's like we're hold people are being vulnerable and sharing with us and we need to see how sacred that is. And we need to hold that so well, like a little baby, tiny baby bird. And we need to carry that through the entire way. And we can't let fatigue get to us and let us drop that. We can't let our own beliefs get to us and let us drop that. We can't let what we even like think to be like objectively and morally right. Get to that. You know, it's like, we need to hold that truth because that is a human. That's a part of a human being. And we need to just keep that sacred and tell that truthfully and then let it go out into the world intact, you know? And I think that's the same with anything that anybody shares with you. It's like the number one thing is they are sharing with you a part of themselves, something you can never 100% understand. And it is I feel like it is our God-given responsibility to hold that so well and hold that so sacredly, like we hold our own stories, you know? So that's why it's important to me. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, which will bring me to my next question, um, is we're talking a lot about empathy and understanding people's stories And I think one of the biggest outlets for storytelling, and it doesn't have to always be factual storytelling, but one of the biggest outlets for storytelling is like movies and the, the media, the entertainment media. Um, so, um, one of the biggest, um, box office movies that you can think of are probably superhero movies. Yeah. Um, for good reason. Uh, they kind of appeal on many different ways of like, you know, uh, drama, action uh adventure and like there's also these sweet parts where it's like oh romantic Funny, usually, and comedy and, yeah. and they just kind of it's exciting it's, it's exciting it's yeah so um it's usually a story of good versus good versus bad um um it's always are you kind intentionally of the, uh, not using evil uh yes why um because i feel evil is it has such a connotation to it 
that will turn people to um, think that you know it is a it it, it is not worth mm. being mm-hmm. um, understood. Mm. It is so evil scum. It's the scum. <laughs> so I usually try to um, evil is very like reserved for a lot of things that I say because I mean. I mean, I can understand, like, using evil in a funny way, but, like, evil, like, when it comes to a serious, like, describing someone um, as evil, yeah, yeah, it's so hard for me because I try to incorporate empathy and stuff into it. But um, a lot of those stories in um, entertainment are, like, good versus bad, like the good oh. guy, the bad guy. Um, but there's been this new um, trend in movies, especially, like, backstories mm-hmm. for villains. Sure, sure, sure. So like the Joker mm. or um, Cruella and Maleficent and all like, you know, sure. those first, villain stories. The first date that I ever went on was to Maleficent when I was a freshman in high school. Wow. And my date had to drive because I did not have my license. Embarrassing. No, joking. <laughs> no, that was exciting. We went to Maleficent and we did not talk because why does anybody go to a movie on their first date? I don't know. I don't understand I've that done either. it like twice in high school and it was always bad. Ooh, yeah, because you don't talk, you don't get to know them. But um, uh, these backstories, um, they have us kind of rooting for the bad guy in some sense. Um, the I recently watched Cruella when it came out in theaters. Wonderful movie. I mean, I'm a sucker for like fashion and uh, you know divas. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, it was so good. It didn't give her excuses, which I like to use excuses and reasons separate um it didn't give her excuses for the way she was like when you know in the traditional 101 dalmatians but you can see reasons why you know like in any villain backstory like the joker you know he's dealing with mental illness and he can't get the medication Mm -hmm. or help that he needs because of whatever society is um haven't seen the full movie only glimpses but uh it's pretty good i yeah i I know you've seen it and you uh we're talking about it but these villain um back uh backstories got me on the question and i started doing some research and i found this um paper written by a 16 year old i don't know how old they are now but they were a 16 year old when they wrote the paper it was for a philosophy contest in ireland and i really like this quote and i quote villains break the rules and they don't feel guilty about it They also lack empathy and feel no remorse for the harm they cause. Villains are difficult and extremely dangerous to know, and yet, many times, they're incredibly fun to watch and often become my favorite characters. I think it's so interesting how she's like saying, oh, villains are this, 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 and this, and this, yet they become so fun to watch and become some of my favorite characters. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of this uptick in origin stories um, that um, we are starting to see these empathy characters for villains. Like um, uh, the Joker, like I said, he was struggling with mental illness and whatnot and whatnot. And then he was put in a situation where he couldn't get the help that he want, needed, um, for one. And then um, there was an empathy building for the audience, you know? And I think that's what made such a good story and storytelling is empathy. Um, so villains have changed from this cartoonish, bad guy yeah where like they are just bad they're just evil you know to a person which we can have empathy for or empathy can be displayed so my question is um why do you think this has changed in storytelling and do you think it is a good turn 
Do you think it's a cautionary turn or what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I think it is a good turn. And I think it, it, it turned because of a, an understanding that like it's important to give depth to characters. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what it was. Like I think you watch old movies with villains and it's always just like, ah, I'm a villain and they're really mean and you don't get anything else. You know, they're just a vehicle for the hero to be the hero. A foil, you know, yeah. It's a, yeah, they're foils and they're just, um, but I also think that's problematic um, in some ways. My friend Harper, when I studied in Oregon, um, they wrote a really, really good paper about villains and about how they've been um, characterized historically. Mm-hmm. And I think that this this idea of like just seeing villains as 100% horrible and evil um, is problematic, especially because sometimes those horrible and evil figures, um, how they were described and how, how they looked – um, who they were, what kind of people in the real world did they look like, you know, that could be manipulated. You know, there, there are a lot of movies where there are villains who are people of color, you know, mm-hmm. and then the heroes are white, white people, you know, and there's like that trope just played over and over. And then it's just like, ah, evil person. Um, but it's like now we're seeing, I think we're just seeing a, a jet overall sense of, People want depth in their characters and people want understanding. And I don't think people want to just be out here seeing an empty villain because it's boring. It is. You know, it's like you even look at Avengers. You look at Thanos, right? He's not an empty villain. Mm -hmm. There's like a lot of complexity there and the reasons that he wants to do this horrible thing and his backstory and all of his baggage. And I'm not a Marvel expert. You should talk to Mark, but, um, or Big Z. Yeah, the movie. It's not the original Thanos backstory, but anyway, you know, uh, from the comics, you mean? Yeah, oh, I'm not. I'm I'm unsure, but it's still a good, good, yeah, good yeah. story. It's so yeah. I think like movies like Joker, and I haven't seen Cruella, but yeah, that comes from this. Um, yeah, that though I think a desire, human desire for depth in um, when a, when a person is um, displayed and um, characterized. But I also think that it is. I think we're really interested in bad, you know, we're interested in people who do bad things like the true crime genre yep. is so enormously huge, you know, like so many, I like it. Like I true like crime it. podcasts mm-hmm. that are really well done, really cool. But like people will just eat up stories about serial killers, stories about people who are so like unbelievably bad, you know, doing these things that you'd never think of. And I think we have this desire to want to, hear about that and there have been studies on it you know and Mm -hmm. i haven't read them but i'm sure that it has something to do with like is there a part of us that is like just interested in that how how humans can be is there a part of us that is like one percent that like wants that part wants to like be that yeah like a morbid curiosity yeah is is there like something innate in everybody yeah that has this morbid curiosity or is it more of a you know like we see parts of what we consider bad in the villains reflected in us. And yeah. I think it provides us a good um, mirror to like what we can see as bad and find those things in us. It makes it connectable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think those are some, those are some things that I think about. Yeah. I just, I've just had this question about like how we can use storytelling to understand God 
And I think it always comes back to empathy um, because understanding someone's story will give us empathy. Empathy and sympathy being different. Sympathy is usually uh, through your own lens. Yeah. Like you can sympathize if with that. If you've experienced something similar. Yeah. Um, hence the word sim, you know, similar. Um, uh, whereas empathy is like you maybe haven't gone through that, um, but you're putting yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important to w- give us space to feel empathy and storytelling gives us that space almost every time. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's human unless you're a socio or a psychopath, you know, to like be able to understand that somebody's story matters to them. And Mm -hmm. to even if I've had nothing horrible ever happen to me and I read a story about somebody or listen to a story about somebody who's gone through immense adversity, you know, there's there's always something human about seeing like, whoa, like that is adversity and like that person went through it and that is important to that person. You know, and I think the more you explore that and the more you develop an ascent for that and a, um, a curiosity to that, the, the more you can learn. And I think personally, the more you can learn about God, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Relationships. There's so much to it um, because you could see someone a certain way based on um, the way you've interacted with them. And then they could interact with someone the same way, but different person and see, and that interpretation is totally different. Mm. So my question is, do you think it's appropriate to, um, be giving empathy or like feeling empathy in a certain way towards these bad characters who sometimes don't feel guilty, don't feel remorse, don't have empathy. And it doesn't even have to be like, um, you know, the Joker or anything like that. It could be, um, people in real life like the big evil quote-unquote um bad guy in history was hitler so people are always so surprised to see him laughing and having fun with friends you Mm -hmm. know like when they see those pictures because of the way he's been depicted through history do you think it's appropriate to have empathy for these characters and these people yeah i think that um i yeah, I think that it's it's important to understand that every human who's ever existed has a complex story and has a complex experience and is a human that's worthy of some sort of curiosity. But I also don't think that everybody is worthy of like deep understanding and pray and, and like praise, obviously, but like this like just longing to like why, why, why? Because yeah, sometimes there's people who do incredibly heinous things and it's because they were a psychopath. You know, like you think of the main Columbine shooter. You know, I read that book for a research project, the book by Dave Cullen that gives like the whole backstory and like details to that. And yet the kid was just a psychopath. You know, he just had something in his brain and it's like there, there's a lot of harm that's gone by popularizing those characters. I think Mm -hmm. that's something that we need to watch out for is like the Columbine shooters became celebrities and they like had this cult following and there's been 30 plus school shooters in America who have credited their actions to the Columbine shooters because of the way that they were, because of the way their stories were told. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting. 
because you can think of storytelling as just like, oh, they were really horrible, so we need to talk about them forever because it's interesting, you know? Like, that's, yeah, evil people, school shooters, like the one that just happened in um, Michigan, mm -hmm. right? That's like, it's interesting because it's wild and it's troubling and it's something way out of the ordinary. It's something you don't expect. So that's something that you want to, to look into, you know? I've looked it up. I, look, I wanted to figure out what the kid's name was, you know? But there's this push that you're seeing with you. You can see it in social media. You can see it in Dave Cullen's book Parkland, which he wrote after Columbine. He does not name the shooter once does not give details about the shooting. The entire thing is about the community response and the community push to heal. That's what the whole novel is. It doesn't talk about the shooter. And you, I've seen social media posts that are like, let's make this kid who like gave his life to save his classmates in the Michigan shooting. Let's make him the story. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's a really interesting push of like, there's legitimate danger in um, making bad people and people who have done um, repeatable evil or repeatable bad, making them into celebrities, you mm -hmm. know? So there's like, I think there is some sort of morals to how you're taking in a story. Mm -hmm. You can't get obsessed to it with obsessed with it without losing this scent of like, this was a horrible thing that this person did. And I need to realize that and I need to realize at a point just to accept this was a really bad thing. And I don't need to know every single little baby thing about it. Yeah, like, you can be curious. You mm -hmm. can absolutely be curious and you can absolutely do that. But do that with this with this understanding of like there might be a human tendency to when you learn so much about somebody to forget that they did a horrible thing. You know, that was part of that research I did in Oregon with I, I researched um, the characterization of murderers in American true crime mm -hmm. narratives. Mm -hmm. So I read Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which was the first true crime narrative, and then Dave Cullen's Columbine, which was a modern one. And I found myself in In Cold Blood because of how Truman Capote um, so well presented one of the killers, which I think this was really good journalism. I found myself forgetting that he was a killer, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, is that moral to tell that story? I think it is. I think Truman Capote did a really good job. Um, but it's also like, it's our job as readers and consumers to not let ourselves go off the rails and be like, this guy was awesome. This guy, oh my gosh, look at him. Like the the online groups in Columbine, they were like romanticizing the shooters mm -hmm. and saying how like beautiful and attractive they thought they were, like writing little comics about them or talking about like, oh, they were so troubled and I just wanted to be their friend and all of this, all of this, all of this and overshadowing the fact that they killed 11 people, mm -hmm. you know? So that, yeah, that's, that's the thing. And I think that's something that like um, Joker, that movie, it does well. It never breaks from the sense of like, this person's doing horrible things. Horrible things, yeah. Right? It, it gives you context and, and asks some questions of like, why are they doing it? And that's what Columbine by Dave Cullen does too. It doesn't just give all of this extra detail. It is always rooted back to how is this affecting the victims? How is this affecting the, fa the, vict the families of the victims? It's always rooted back to you did a heinous thing. And something that probably can't be completely forgotten, right? Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't morally, I feel. Yeah. So those, I think, yeah, the best stories about bad people are those that give a lot of context and a lot of explanation, but they don't break from that central 
thing that caused a lot of harm, you know, mm-hmm. so. Which brings me to the big philosophical question of uh, how we can use what we know about storytelling of people who have done terrible things to understand why God loves. Yeah. You know, like it can be so hard to see these heinous things done and still love them. And um, we see it a lot. There are people who will murder families and then Mm. the families will be like, we forgive them. We're not denying that they've done terrible things, yeah. but we forgive them and we love them. And it's just like so weird. Yeah. You know, and I think that has always been a question in my mind of like why God loves. Um, and it's just like, is it purely empathy? You know, it can't be just purely empathy because if we're using empathy as our only way of love, then these terrible things would be overlooked. Yeah. You know, so my question would be is um, the big one, why God loves. Yeah. You know, like how does God still love? I think it's interesting that you bring up um, like families of victims of like mass murder or serial killer murder or something like that, that Mm -hmm. forgive the killer. And I think that forgiveness at its core is still a, um, it's focused on yourself. I think I don't think we're able to forgive selflessly. Mm-hmm. I don't think those families are not forgiving to rid the murderer of pain. They're not doing that. They're forgiving to rid themselves and to absolve themselves of and it, it, it's it's all it's a um I think it's an act against evil. It's an act against bad. It's combating the lasting effects of a horrible, horrible act. Mm. Because if somebody, I mean, murder is a huge example. But, yeah, f- put yourselves in one of those family shoes. Your child gets murdered or whatever, or, or, or a, a family member by a, a serial killer. And that act in itself will dramatically and forever change your life, right? And it is a quick act and it happens, boom. But then that bad person, that murderer, will continue to have this effect over you as you continue to harbor these horrible emotions and continue to have every single thought in your head be not only changed by the harm that was done, but why and figuring it out and that that person is still there and that it happened and, oh, I hate them, I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. And I feel like that's necessary, but also those families who go through all of that work to get themselves to say, I forgive you. It's not that I hope you go on and have a great life. Mm -hmm. It's that... I don't want you controlling me anymore because you already took everything from me and you're not going to take everything else, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's what forgiveness is at its core. It's not this thing about like, it's just a thing about a hundred percent loving everybody around you. There's definitely a part of that in like, if somebody, if one of my best friends says a really mean thing to me, there is definitely part of that of being like, it, I need to forgive them because they've probably been harboring a lot of guilt and they've shown mm-hmm. that they're guilty. But mm-hmm. it's also like I can't be having that impact the way I view that person for the rest of my life. You know, I've had some people do some really crappy things to me and I've had to like forgiveness either like to them or I think there's some silent forgiveness of just in your own head being like, I'm not going to let them have this grip over me. I'm not going to let them allow 
caused me to act irrationally in a way that I wouldn't have before this happened. You know, it, it's getting, it's ridding the bad, that bad actor of power, of all the power, you know, and that's a an incredible thing. You know, when those families do that forgiveness, like that bad actor is a, has no power anymore. They don't have power because they're in jail for the rest of their lives, right? They don't have like actual tangible power and they don't have power over like psyches, you know? So, and there's, there's still remnants obviously, but I think that's like where forgiveness comes. And then I think that, that, that leads me into like understanding and just being in awe of like God's forgiveness of us because that is selfless forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. God's, God's not up there being like, Ah, I'm I'm so in pain because of everything that everybody's doing, right? Or he's like, "Oh my goodness, if I don't forgive you, my wrath is gonna yeah, exactly, exactly, right?" He's not doing that. You see, in the Old Testament, they like promised like not do that, and I think the Old Testament is interesting because you see God like mess up, and you see God like mess up, quote unquote. Well, yeah, but you see, God is is explained as like, or at least I see him as like learning. Which I think is like a huge human concept. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. The the way that it was written, it was like, oh, it was learning. You know, he they yeah, humanized him in that way. He does a thing, and then he does a different thing that is like it. You follow that line. It's like, oh, he maybe learned, but whatever. But we probably know that's not true. Um, but I think that there's a yeah. It thinking about how God forgives people who have done incredibly horrible things. And just forgiving them on the basis of knowing that they have humanity. And it's not because it absolves him of pain, mm-hmm. which is like a lot of, I think, why we forgive. It just more like characterizes him as this like awesome, holy compassionate being of like, he is the ultimate story listener. He's the ultimate empath of understanding that every one of us has value. And um, that he's going to forgive the things that we've done on the basis of Christ and that sacrifice, but also on the basis of understanding our value, I think. Yeah. And we could get into theology of the whole thing, but... I'm not interested in doing that. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think any of us are theology majors here or uh, have done enough research in the field to give an accurate... Yeah. uh, kind of description of that because it is so hard and that's why i started this podcast is to just talk about some of these ideas maybe not have answers because i'm sure we don't we will never understand why god forgives why god loves yeah why god the way he is you know i don't think we'll ever understand that he is on the fourth dimension oh zing (laughs) zing so um i got a couple more questions for you as uh we wrap up here is can we apply what we know about our relationships to help us understand our relationship with God? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think hmm. can we apply what we know about our relationships with our relationship with God? Yeah, I think, I mean, the big one for me is that thing that I explained of Understand, like, seeing the greatest, the, like, most selfless and most loving relationships in my life and 
recognizing that God's relationship to me is that times like a hundred thousand to the power of a hundred (laughs) thousand, you know, it's, it's not even on the same level. And I think about like how Mary loves me, how my dad loves me, how my best friends love me. And that is like the greatest tangible love that I feel right on earth. Cause I, I don't, it's hard for me to understand like what tangible love is from God. You know, that's something that I'm still figuring out, but to just know that like he is, he does love me in that way that I can't fully understand because it's so much higher than any human experience. Um, that's pretty incredible. So there's more to it, but it's not coming to me right now. It's all good. It's all good. And, um, one last question for you is if there's anything that you've learned about your relationships with God, with people, with yourself, um, that has helped you, um, become, um, in better relationship with those people and with God and with yourself, what is it? And how can people practice such maybe discipline? I'm sorry. Can you, can you restate that? Yeah. Um, how, is there anything you've learned from your relationships with people and God and yourself yeah. that has created a different way of thinking that has helped you deepen those relationships? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 That's a good. That's a good one. Um, yeah, I think understanding that ability and that singular ability that God has to be infinitely, selflessly, objectively curious to me and wanting wanting a relationship with me and, and knowing everything and offering that comfort, you know, I, I want to try to chase that. I want to, obviously nobody can achieve that, but I want to try my best to like get to the sense of what that is of if there can be anything close to selfless, objective curiosity and um, honor of other people, I want to get there. And that comes through so many things that comes from deep listening. That comes from engagement in humor an understanding of different senses of humor. What Mm -hmm. makes people laugh an understanding of, of, um, of interests and what makes people tick and uh, an understanding of how, how and when to engage with somebody, when to let off and, and what, what level of energy to come to, to that conversation with, how to have common sense, how to be uh, nimble and thoughtful in the way that you are interacting with people um, in a way that's not just like, this is me and I am this and you're, this is what you're going to get. You know, I think that's kind of harmful of the things like, if you don't respect me, then I'm not going to give you any respect. And this is me. And I'm just going to be this way. And it's like, there's, I think being yourself doesn't just mean having no, like having no, um, like subtlety. And I'm, I'm not thinking of the word, but like, being yourself also means like being aware of your surroundings and knowing what parts of yourself to show in what levels. 
You know, it's not just being 100% how you feel in the moment in your raw animal desire <laughs> and instinct because that's going to rub people the wrong way and that might connect with some people around you, but it's really not going to connect with others and that's not that's not honoring their experiences and that's being selfish. Mm. You know, just that understanding. Like, it doesn't, it takes a lot to to know yourself, but knowing yourself doesn't also mean just like spouting off everything that you think you are to everyone all the time. It's like have some sort, have some sense of like what to do in situations to make people comfortable. Lead with that. Lead with that love. That because that's that's love in a really high order. I think is just like no matter how it affects you, like making sure first, does this affect this person in a positive way and in a way that honors them? Because maybe, maybe I think affecting somebody in a negative way can still honor them, mm -hmm. right? If somebody's doing something, somebody's disrespecting somebody else or disrespecting you and you confront them in a nuanced way, mm -hmm. like that will maybe affect them in the short term in a wrong way. And we've all done it. I've said crappy things to people and they've, they've, pointed me out on it and it affects me like, oh, I didn't like hearing that. But then it's like, oh, I've learned. But so, yeah, um, that, <laughs> that, that whole thing right there. Yeah. Anyway, well, it was so good to have you on here. Thanks for having me. We talked fun. about so many different things. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for, uh, but that's what makes for inviting it me on and letting me just um, explore. Yeah. With you. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Zach Walker, for being on with us tonight. Um, we'd like to wish you a good time. There you <laughs> go. You got it. Uh, have a good time, everyone. Um, thank you all. <laughs>